This morning, as we prepare to hear God's Word, I'm going to ask you to join me in your Bibles by opening to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32 is a rather lengthy chapter that I had hoped to cover in its entirety today, but we will not be able to, but we will cover a significant part of it. So I'm going to begin reading at the beginning of chapter 32 of Jeremiah, and today I'm going to read down through about verse 27. So listen as I read, and then we will pray and dig in to consider this together. Hear God's word as I read it. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard and was in the palace of the king of Judah. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of, the Babylon, of Babylon, and shall speak to him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, by my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And then I knew this was a word from the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth. Uh, from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on the scales, and then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the uh, son of uh, Messiah, and in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Verse 16. And after I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands. But you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. They entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come on them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to take the city, and because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet, Lord God, you have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses. 
though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Let's pray. Lord, I would ask that you would be pleased once again as, as we've come together in the name of Jesus Christ to worship you and sing your praises, but also, God, to hear from you. We have that great confidence that every part of your word is God-breathed, inspired by you, given to us, so that, Lord, we would understand you, you we, we would draw near to you, that we would uh, worship you. We believe in accordance with your word that every portion of it is profitable. And I ask, God, that this morning you would help me to take elements from this passage and unfold them in a way that, that makes powerfully clear some of the richness of your word, some of the richness of your being and your character. God, that you would take this time of the, of the preaching of your word and you would cause it to powerful effect in the hearts and minds of your people. Grant that I would speak faithfully and clearly. Oh God, grant all those that you have assembled here this morning that they would hear with humble hearts, attentive ears, and an eager desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now that was a, a lengthy section I read, and it wasn't even the entirety of this chapter. Uh, but what I want us to begin to see here is this is a time where things have already been going on. Here are the, the, the children of Israel have been practicing uh, disobedience living sinfully. God would regularly in their times of disobedience stir up prophets and send those prophets to these people to call them out of their sin, to tell them you must turn from this. If you do not turn from this, then I am going to come to you and punish you. And, the, and this happen, would happen repeatedly, and God always proved faithful to his word. He would give those warnings, they would oft reject those warnings, and he would come in and he would judge them. And then it, after a season of punishment, they would cry out to God, and he would rebuild them and restore them, and they would go into disobedience again. As we come here to this time, we, we get this clear picture of what's happening. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, is there in Jerusalem. And that whole city, that whole area is under siege. The nature of a siege means they are cut off. They can't get things out of town. They cannot bring things in. So it's just a matter of time before all of the food that they have in town all of the things that they have for sustenance and survival begin to dwindle, begin to weaken, and in desperation, the whole point of a siege, in desperation, you either go out in a weakened state and fight a superior battle that's, that's uh, against uh, an enemy who's fortified and ready, or you just give up. And so this is the condition that they're in, and Zedekiah has in his mind, God ought to deliver us. We are the people of God. This is often the thought of the children of Israel, in spite of their disobedience, their willful rejection of God's word. Remember, in this passage, the testimony of the scriptures in verse 23 is this, they took possession of the land, but did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. That's the, that's the condition of these people. But they thought, regardless of what we do, we're God's people. He brought us out of Egypt. He gave us this land. We'll be good. We'll be fine. Even leading into this chapter, I want to give us a sense of this. This is way back for those who like history and chronology. This is about 588, 587 B.C. Back in Jeremiah 25, leading towards this, he says this in verse 11. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations... 
Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. In chapter 29 of Jeremiah, he says this in verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. In Daniel, when Daniel was one of those who was taken under Nebuchadnezzar and taken into that captivity in Babylon, in Daniel chapter 9, it says this, verse 2, in the first year of the reign of King, of King Darius, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books that the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, Namely, 70 years. All right, so the, this is wonderfully clear. There's no secrets, are there? What is happening? God is visiting judgment on the wickedness of the children of Israel. This judgment is going to take them into exile. That exile is going to last 70 years. It is the Chaldeans, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, that's going to do this. Now, what I want us to begin to see, even before we get there, is God is declaring this before it happens. Who's going to come against them? How they're going to come against them? The results of this, this engagement? And then how long they're going to be in captivity? Exactly. Now, who else can do that? Is, is it Nebuchadnezzar's plan that when I take them as slaves, I'm going to hold them for 70 years, then after 70 years, I'm going to release them? Is that his plan? Not at all, because he's not even going to make it to the end of that 70 years himself. It's going to be passed on to subsequent kings. But here God is so sovereign, so powerful, so in control that he's not, listen, not merely predicting, but powerfully controlling all of the events. He's not merely looking into the future and, and saying, okay, it's going to last about 70 years. He's determining it's going to last 70 years. Now, if the king of Babylon, who's in control at that time, says, no, 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 I will hold them longer. Can he? No. If the king of Judah says, no, 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 we will not give up and we will not lose to the king of Babylon. Can he resist? No, because God is absolutely powerful and sovereign in control. And that's what I want us to see. Our first point that we're going to look at this morning is we see the sure reality. The absolute sure reality. And that comes to us really beginning in verse 1. What's, what's interesting is the way verse 1 of chapter 32 begins here in Jeremiah is we already have Jeremiah has been in prison in the court of the guards. And why is Jeremiah in prison in the court of the guards that is within the, uh, the king's uh, palace? Why is Jeremiah imprisoned? He's imprisoned because the king does not like his prophecies. And partly also because these prophecies are, we are going to lose. We are going to be taken over and the king is going to be humiliated and subjected to the king of Babylon and taken away. And if you can take Jeremiah and sequester him into the court of the guards, then hopefully his message doesn't get around and discourage and demoralize everybody else. But I tell you this, discouraged, demoralized, encouraged, invigorated, the emotional, mental condition of men does not change the sure reality of God. He is going to accomplish his will, his design, and his purposes. If men are discouraged, can he still take discouraged men and give them victory? Can he take men who are remarkably confident and lead them into defeat? Yes. 
We've actually seen that repeatedly in the scriptures. After the defeat of Jericho, the people, they're so overconfident, they look at the next city, the city of Ai, and they say, we don't even have to all go there. Let's just send some of us. Because this is easy, because you saw what we just did. And they go over there, and what happened? They got defeated and run out. And then all of a sudden, Joshua's like, oh, no, what will we do? Now everybody who was afraid of us, we've lost that element of fear. They're no longer in awe of us. We've lost the intimidation factor. So now how will we win? Oh, do you really think you're winning because of the intimidation factor? No, you're winning because I am winning for you. And he then continues to give them tremendous victories. Their thought that somehow it was on them, on men, and not understanding that the sure reality of everything unfolds by God's power, word, and purposes. Now what I want us to see in this sure reality is, is, is this. This is a simple thought. It doesn't matter if God says what we don't like or we don't want. It's still true. If what God says is not something that appeals to our desire, that stokes our interest, it doesn't matter. It's still true because it's God's word. Can men judge God's word on the basis of whether they like it or not? Whether they want it or not? They do. I'm sorry to say, they often do. I was reading something recently where there, there are certain doctrines that are so powerfully and clearly taught in Scripture. And I was reading one particular author, and, and he was saying about that particular doctrine that's taught, he was saying, that can't be true because all reasonable men would rebel against that sense and we would not respect God if he was or worked that way. It's like, okay, so it's not true, not because the scripture doesn't say it, it's not true because if it's true, you can't accept it. You don't feel good about it. It doesn't appeal to you as noble. It doesn't seem to you as just. Well, that doesn't work because you're going to meet people from time to time. And I have as well who will say, I, you know, I can't believe your scriptures that say uh, all men are sinners because one man sinned back in the garden. That wouldn't be fair for condemnation to pass on all men because one man sinned. And even if people feel like, well, that doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem fair. Is it true? It's still true. And so we cannot pretend as though God's word has to ever conform to our desires our wants, our expectations, or our likes. Further, you'll meet people who will say things along these lines. It does not seem fair that if a man has sinned for 70 years, that he would then be punished forever and ever. I mean, it only makes sense. 70 years, 70 years, and then done. That makes sense to me. I think that's how God ought to do it. Too many men think like that. I think that's how God ought to do it. This sounds more just to me. This sounds more fair. This sounds more right. This sounds more reasonable. This sounds better to me. We've got to stop asking what sounds better and what sounds desirable and simply ask, what does God say? And then say, it's true. It's right. I must believe it. I must accept it. Men will, and here's evidence in this, men will rebel against and reject the word of God. He has told them, the king has told them, God is bringing this judgment. 
this king who's laying siege, he will have the victory. You, Zedekiah, will lose and be taken away. Now, if you bind up and you stop the mouth of the man who's speaking the word of God, do you stop God from accomplishing his purposes? No. So even if you get the people to stop saying what they don't want to hear, what's true remains true. It's so important for us to get that. But there's, there's, there's kind of another edge in there. This is not the only time that this happened. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 22, we have Jehoshaphat being asked to go into battle with, with King Ahab. And it says this, the, in, in chapter 22, verse 8 of 1 Kings, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, after he said, is there not yet another prophet that we can inquire of before we go into battle? All these prophets came through, and he says, is there not one more? And the king said, well, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. But Jehoshaphat said, let the king not say so. I hate him because I don't like what he says. Oh, no. Now, the goal of anyone who's speaking the word of God, and surely the goal of most of these prophets was not, I can't wait to offend the king. Not at all. Because what did it often mean when they went in and offended the king? Oh, no. Threat of death imprisonment, impoverishment. It meant bad things were coming their way, but they still said what God gave them. Why? Because what God gives them is true. What God gives them is sure. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10 and 11, God's word says this. Concerning the children of Israel, they, it says they say to the seers, that's like the prophets, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy what is right. <laughs> They're actually telling their prophets, hey, don't prophesy correctly. Don't prophesy what's really going to happen. We don't want to hear those things. It goes on to say this, speak to us. Smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Now when we hear that phrase in the ESV, speak to us smooth things, that's a strange sentence, right? That idea is flatter us. Flatter us and make us feel good. Prophesy to us illusion or deceit. Tell us what we want to hear. Whether it's right or wrong, we want to hear what we want to hear. Make us feel good. Make us happy, even if it's lies. Really? Now, it seems to me strange that they would ask the prophets to do that. And I don't know if it, it's somewhat uh, symbolic, but don't prophesy to us what is right. That, that was, the, that was their, the cry of their heart. Over in Amos chapter 7, God's word says this. Amaziah, in verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go away, flee from the land of Judah and eat bread there. Oh, flee to the away to the land of Judah and eat bread there. Prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Go over there where maybe they care to hear you, but the king's in charge over here, and what you're saying doesn't fit here. He didn't want it. He didn't like it. So go do it somewhere else. Oh. And then Amos answers him in verse 14 of chapter 7 and says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, Look, I, I was no prophet. Or the son of the prophet. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. I worked with trees. I worked with animals and plants. I had no plan to be a prophet. It wasn't my goal to open my mouth and be a spokesman and to make things known. And now you're telling me I've got to leave. What is he going to say? Verse 15. 
But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. It's as simple as that. What can I do? It's never been my goal to be the guy to say things people don't want to hear. You know, to, to be the bearer of bad news, to, to be the, the declarer of that which men find undesirable. And there is what we call the gospel, which is indeed good news, but when we're declaring the reality of the gospel to the people of this world, there's a bit of bad news woven in there, is there not? The bad news that's woven into our declaration of the good news is what? Apart from Christ, if you have not and do not in faith turn to Him, you are in your sin. And in your sin, there is nothing that awaits you but the fiery prospect of judgment. That's not good news. You tell that to the world, the people say, wow, that sounds great. Could you say that part again? Tell me again the part about the burning and the fire and the fury because that, yeah. No, there, there is something about that, that that rubs people the wrong way. They don't want that. And then there's something that rises up within men. What are you saying? That you're better than me? And we try to say, no, I'm not better than you, but Christ is better than all. And our only hope is him. Our hope is not in our goodness and in what we've achieved. Our hope is completely resting on Christ and in his righteousness and in his sacrifice alone. Uh, you're saying your beliefs are better than mine? I'm saying no, what God has declared to be true, revealed to be true, indeed proven to be true by raising his son from the dead is true. And it remains true whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not. You can gather up the majority of mankind across the face of this world, and I think most of them would not agree with the gospel. Most of them would not agree that there's only one God. Most of them would not agree that there is only one salvation through Jesus Christ. Most of them would not agree that there is an eternity of suffering and punishment for all sinners who have not come in repentance to Christ. Most would not agree with that. They're wrong. And again, I'm not saying it, it, it simply in this way. They're wrong. We're right. Na, 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 na. No. They're wrong. He's right. And that's how it's always going to be. And the only ones among us who are going to be right are those who set aside what were our own thoughts, what were our own imaginations, what are our own myths and expectations, and just sit back and by the grace of God say, He's right. I agree with Him, and I will declare His right to men. But you do that, or imagine you do that, and you declare His words to men. And you say to them, what they don't want to hear. How do men often respond to that? You tell them what they don't like, what they don't want, what they don't desire, and they reject it. Even as we heard this morning, and the scripture reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, that simple thing, even pointing forward, it's interesting, it says it of the, of the time to come, but it looks like to some degree it's always been the case. But it continues to get worse. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Look, I, my, my people's interest will not be, tell me what is true. Tell me what God's word says. I want to know what God's word says. I want to know what, what is going to happen. I want to know what he would have me do. I want to know what he would have me turn from. I want to know how he would have me live. Please tell me God's word. Tell it to me faithfully. Tell me all of it. Tell me God's word. The scripture says, no, no, no. The time's coming. People aren't going to say, tell me God's word. They're going to say, Tell me about God's promises. Tell me about God's mercies and God's good things. Tell me, uh, for example, I used as an example moments ago 
Jeremiah, in our introduction, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, that said, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will revisit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. Who is that prophecy being spoken to? The children of Israel at that particular time in history. They are going to go into exile. They are going to be in exile for 70 years. And after 70 years, they are going to return back to their land and take up residence again. But that doesn't change the fact that the very next verse that explains what God is going to fulfill for them after 70 years is on posters and cards all over Christian bookstores. It says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And what does everyone say? I claim that promise, that God has promised to give me a future and a hope. Well, claim that promise in its context in 70 years. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that so if I want to claim this promise, this promise is, is being fulfilled 70 years from the time of its declaration? Yep. So I'm pretty sure if I was to supposedly try to claim a promise 70 years from now, I may not be around to collect. Well, no, I don't want the 70-year part of the promise. I want the hope in a future, but I want the future now and the hope today. Can you make me feel like that? Yes, I will make you feel like that. Let me explain to you how you can have your best life now. Let me explain to you how you can have everything you want and you can be happy and you can be fulfilled and, and life is easy. Let me explain it to you. And, and what does the world say? I like this. This tastes good. Feed me more of this. Oh. But what happens to... Uh, Jeremiah in this situation, because Jeremiah spoke faithfully the word of God. And remember, Jeremiah is not the one who brought that king in. Jeremiah is not the one who's affecting the outcome of this battle. He's simply declaring the word of the Lord. And as a result of that, now he's imprisoned. He's shut down. He's mistreated. The scripture tells us, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew 5, verse 11 and following, says these words, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, it's always fun to consider that for just a moment. So what's, what's, what's happening in that person's practical experience there that Jesus is speaking about? Let's see. People are reviling you. What is it? Now, we don't use that term very often, but it's not, it does not mean that they are complimenting and encouraging you. It means they are speaking lies against you. They are mocking you. They are trying to break you. They are trying to break other people's thoughts of you. And Jesus says, blessed are you when they revile you, persecute you. Now, generally speaking, if someone is reviling you, speaking against you, and mistreating you, is your first thought, I am blessed. Blessed day, oh blessed day, today has been filled with reviling and persecution. Do you feel that way? No, and so, but, so Jesus is presenting something where, where there, there, is a, there is a spiritual sense in which we, we experience the onslaught of this world, which may at times strongly come against God's people who are trying to walk in his ways, strongly come against God's people who are trying to declare his word faithfully. And we understand this, look, 
I'm being persecuted by them now, but I know that my eternity is secure. I know that they're speaking all these things against me, but I need not worry about the lies that they say about me. And indeed, as much as they may lie and speak against me, I have an advocate who's at the right hand of the Father who's interceding on my behalf. So yeah, they can do all they want. I know that I'm blessed because for whatever they seem to be saying against me, I have one who speaks for me. For, for whatever they may do against me, I have one who has secured for me a, a, a deliverance and an eternity that, that's far more exceptional and exceeding to anything I could imagine. And so I know that I stand blessed. Even if today... Ain't such a good day. Because our blessedness is rooted in a deeper reality than just the, the, the tangible experience. He even says in verse 12 of Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad. Now that, that, to, to, that phrasing is difficult, isn't it? What has gone on today? Mistreatment and mockery. And my response Rejoice and be glad? Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Uh, our, our, because we're, we recognize there is a surer and deeper and secure reality that is beyond all these things. They think that they are in the right and we are in the wrong. They think that they can, they can bring us to misery and they can stand. But the fact is this, we know who Christ is. And because of that, His grace, we know who we are in Him. And so what can men do to us? Our hope is secure. Our salvation is secure. His promises are sure and, and glorious. And I want us to, so men will reject and rebel against the truth. Men will be rejected and reviled and wronged for the truth. But what do we do? We still stand and declare the truth. And why do we do that? Because it's the sure reality. It's the word of God. Nothing else really matters. That's why the scripture says, for example, of us as believers, um, rejoice, great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, such as Jeremiah that we're looking at today. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled under feet. It's like, look, you got to keep being salt. Even if the people don't want it. Even if they feel like I don't want this around. That's what we're designed to be. And we speak the word of God. Whether people are receptive to it. Whether they want to or not. To the apostles this is the way Jesus said it in Luke chapter 21. Verse 16 he says this. You will be delivered over. Now this had to be very hard for them to hear. They've been chosen to be his apostles, which some might think, what a blessed position. What a blessed privilege. They might think that they get to walk around in white robes and everywhere they go, people are going to pay homage to them and give them money as they pass by. No, that's not what's going to happen to these men. He actually, Jesus tells them this, you will be delivered over or delivered up even by parents. Some of these apostles, their parents would stand against them and turn them over. And brothers and relatives and friends. All those people that you would think you could rely on, you think care for you, they th you think you can trust in and lean upon. By standing with me, they may stand against you. So that Jesus, in case they didn't get it, says this in verse 17. And some of you, will they will put to death. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, you know, I, I imagine that. Uh, you put up a table. And in front of the table, it, it, it's a sign-up table. 
sign up here, everybody who wants to be hated. How long would that line be? Another line, sign up everyone who wants to be loved, everyone who wants to be healthy, everyone who wants to get money. You're going to have a lot of people in a bunch of these lines, but the line that says, sign up here if you want to be hated, who's going to be in that line? Well, now, honestly, if all it said was sign up because you're going to be hated, I wouldn't be in that line either, okay? But it says, you will be hated for the sake of my name. That's what makes all the difference. If our union with Christ, our faithfulness with, to Christ, our proclamation of Christ is what causes us to be hated, then hated we will be because he is Lord of all. Amen? There's, there's no way around that. And we don't want to get around that. And our goal isn't to be hated, but we actually know that there's no more loving thing that we can do for the world that hates us than to, to, to declare to them the hope of salvation. That's the most loving thing we can do. It may come to their hard hearts offensive. They may revile against it and they may rebel. But it's the, it's the deepest love that we can show for them. To speak the smooth, smoothness, smooth words, to give them flattery. What good is that? What use is that? To make them feel contented and hopeful and happy all the while. They're lost. They must have Christ. I want us to see uh, the second thing here. Not only does this passage reveal to us the sure reality, the second thing I want us to see here is what I would call the sound response. Now, what's interesting about this is all of a sudden in verse 6 of chapter 32, verse 6 doesn't seem to go with what goes before it. And there's no mistakes in God's word, but it, it begins to give us a, a different idea. And it's, it, this is what it says now beginning in verse 6. He, it tells him that someone is going to come to him, a cousin, and ask him to buy a field. And that when his cousin asks him to buy the field, what he should do is buy the field. Okay. Now, it's a strange statement, isn't it? All right, okay, someone's going to come ask me to buy a field. What, what is the point of that? Even if you want to go down with me um, a little further, go with me to verse 25. He's going to say a lot in between there and to speak of God's power and God's might and God's being. And he says this in verse 25, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is being in, given into the hands of the Chaldeans. What does Jeremiah know? The city's being given into the hands of the Chaldeans. We're being exiled for 70 years. Why am I buying this land? I mean, if I buy this property, what use am I going to get out of it? And what's the answer? What use is he going to get out of that land? None. Is he going to build a house there? No. Is he going to plant seed there? No. Is he going to harvest there? No. What does he get out of it? Nothing. And so the, the question in his mind, and it's a reasonable question, uh, why? <laughs> I don't understand why. Now, God's going to explain to him the reason why is simply because it is going to be an example. It is going to be a sign to the people that eventually he is going to bring them back. And eventually they are going to buy and sell and trade land. But Jeremiah could think this. But practically for me, I get nothing out of this. So I'm doing something that serves your purpose and serves as an example to someone else, but I get nothing out of it? Why? What's the point? And here, here's what, what I want to say. The sound response is simply this. It doesn't matter if it makes good sense to you. If God says it, do it. Right? So the first one, it doesn't matter if you want it or like it. If God says it, it's true. 
It doesn't matter if it makes sense to you or you want it or like it. If his word says it, commands it, instructs it, do it. Why? Because he's God. But I'm not going to get anything out of it. Do you have to, does everything exist for you? Or do you exist for him? I mean, who is giving you breath? Who's giving you the means to potentially buy that land? Who's in control of all of these things? Stop second-guessing God and stop thinking that God has to somehow satisfy your sensibilities. Use your reasonableness to recognize what He requires, not why He requires it. And if, if in the reasoning of your mind you see clearly this is what God requires of me, you do that. But what am I going to get out of it? No, no, no. You do it, why? Because he said it. Well, I don't even see what he's going to get out of it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you see what he gets out of it. Doesn't matter if you see what you get out of it. If you know what he wants, you do it. Boy, that's a little simple. What, are we being treated like, like children? You know, Do what I say. I don't have to explain to you. I don't have to tell you why. Or as often as children maybe are want to say, why? And a parent will say, because I said so. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to clean my room now? Why do I have to? Because I said so. Now, oftentimes, children don't, aren't fully satisfied with that answer. Shame on those children. <laughs> I was one of those children too, and I get it. But there has to be the sense where, why not? This is my father. This is my mother. This is my God who said it to me. I, it doesn't matter what his motive. It doesn't matter what his reason. It doesn't matter what I may or may not gain. It doesn't even matter if I might lose everything by obedience. This is my God who said it. I'm going to do it. And so into this, uh, he tells Jeremiah to buy this property, to buy this land, and he does it, knowing he will never even see it. He will never even visit it. And actually, the fact that he won't, he's being told to take the deed and to put it in an earthenware vessel where it will be stored for a long time. So somewhere down the road, maybe one of his descendants will get that land but it's being put away, and he's never personally going to see the benefit of it. Brothers and sisters, do we only want to obey and serve God if we think we're going to experience temporally the benefit of it? God, I'll, I'll do this for you. I'll be more faithful. I'll be more earnest. I'll be more diligent. I'll be more, if you will help me out with this. If in the next two years, this. Do we barter with God like that? Oh, maybe I should say, should we barter with God? The answer is no. Do we? Sometimes. <laughs> Not we necessarily in this room, but we know people are prone to do that. Our tendency is to want to trade God a little more faithfulness for a little bit of, of pleasantries and gifts right now but God would say things so God says this to him and, and it doesn't make sense but this is not the only place in Ezekiel chapter 4 when I read what God would instruct for the prophets at times I think how difficult would this be in Ezekiel chapter 4 the prophet is told this is what I want you to do lie down on your side lie down on the ground and lay on your right side for 390 days. Now you just think about that. I mean my mind is thinking bed sores. And all kinds of problems. 390 days he's going to be there. Laying on the ground. People are going to bring him stuff. He's going to cook his food there on the ground. Eat there on the ground. 390 days. More than a year. Just laying there. As an example to the children of Israel. Each day to represent a number of years. That God is going to bring punishment on them. And when the 390 days of laying on his right side is done, God says, now when you're done with that, turn over to your left side for another 40 days. <sighs> you know, I, I, I'm just being honest here. I'm thinking if I'm Ezekiel, 
can't I just tell them 390 years? Can't I just tell them 40 years? Why do I have to lay there for 390 days? Because my mind and your mind, our tendency is to say why instead of yes. Strangely enough, if you go down to, to Ezekiel chapter 5, now he's told after doing all of that, sharpen your sword so that it's sharp like a razor's blade and use that sword to shave your head and your beard. I mean, that seems precarious, dangerous, uncomfortable, in that society, age, and culture, somewhat humiliating. Remember, for, the, for some of David's soldiers, when they had their beards shaved, they were allowed to stay at a distance until they regrew a little bit. And he was going to have to do this. And, and then he was going to have to take a third of his hair and throw it to the wind, and a third of it and burn it, and a third of it whack it with the sword. And you think, this is all kind of weird. But even if, if it's weird, it was really clear. This is what he wanted. And so the prophet knew exactly what God wanted of him. And he did it. And I guess there's, we could see more than that in the scriptures. If you go to Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3, you, you see the uncomfortable thing as an, an example of the sinful condition of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah the prophet himself was going to have to walk around for three years barefoot and naked. Three years. No shoes, no clothes. In public. As a sign of God's judgment against Egypt and Cush. Which isn't even the children of Israel. So you might think, now that really doesn't make sense. God's going to ask Noah to build a boat on dry ground. When there's never been rain and floods, anything like that. Does it make sense? I, again, I have to... I want to make this clear. Does it have to make sense to us? See, why God wanted him to do that may not have been fully comprehensible. But what God wanted him to do was very clear. God said to Abraham, and this is very uncomfortable. Take your son and sacrifice him. I mean... Again, I would think at that point, maybe Abraham could say, uh, human sacrifice? All right, God, <laughs> you would never want that. So something's amiss here. But what did Abraham do? He did what God required. And of course, we know that God did not require human sacrifice. He simply required that obedient heart Willingness to do everything, even those things that, things that seemed unreasonable, seemed unsensible. God is never going to, to lead us or cause us or command us to do something that's wrong. Even that response, willing response of Abraham's heart was not followed through in doing the deed that would be unacceptable, right? And so we can leave all of the purposes, the why, the outcomes to God. While we simply say, what would he have me do? How can I fulfill his will? How can I honor him? I mean, who would have thought, he tells Moses, go and hit, go and speak to a rock or strike a rock and water's going to come out of a rock. How's that going to work? Well, it, it, it did work. When they were bit with serpents, when you're bit and this poison is coursing through your body and, you're, and others you know have died for it, go look at a brass serpent. And by looking at a brass serpent on a pole, you'll be healed. I mean, no ointment, no injection, no surgery, no bloodletting. Just have a look at a brass... Does that even make sense? Well... How it would work makes no sense. What's expected makes a lot, is very clear. Go have a look. You get bit, go have a look. 
I don't think it'll work. If someone says, I don't think it'll work, I'm not doing it, what happens to that person? Dead. What if a person says, I'm going to look at it, but I don't see how it'll work? He looks at it, and what happens? It works. Why? Because God isn't bound by our understanding. God's not bound by our limitations. He's not bound by our weaknesses. He is glorious. He is God. Now, I want to uh, go on further because what we see in here is God's absolutely superior reasoning. He has his purposes. Um, when, we, when we see how all these things unfold, one of the things we see is this. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, it says this of God, the rock. His work is perfect, and all his ways are just. And so we, we have that established. Why does he want me to do that? Because it's perfect. This doesn't seem right if he said it, it's just. We stand on that surety of faith. where and it says, um, A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. In Psalm 119, it says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Everything that God says is right. That's why Romans goes on to say this in Romans 3, verse 4 and following. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? In other words, he's saying, it's hard to understand uh, by God allowing sin into the world, it, help, it, it reveals his holiness and righteousness. Uh, but that seems unfair. And the scripture says, but God is true and every man's a liar. And God's way is just. And God's way is pure. But I, I, I can't reconcile it. I can't put it all together. Can you hear it? Can you read it? Believe it, even if it's beyond your understanding, because his ways are unsearchable. And even beyond finding out, which is why when we, we, we see what I would call not only the superior reason, I would say the sovereign recalled or remembered. Look what it says in verse, uh, beginning of verse 17. And since we uh, will be coming back to the rest of chapter 32, maybe we'll, uh, we'll finish with this today. Look what he says in verse 17. Ah, Lord God. Even as he, verse 18, after I had given the deed of purchase, he went ahead and did it. Not because it necessarily made sense to him, because verse 27 down below is still, or verse 25 down below, he's still going to say, I don't, I don't understand this. The city's given over to the Chaldeans, but he knows this. I may not understand all of this, and all of why this is like it is. But here's what I know. Who he is. And here's what I know. What he's like. And so all of this may remain uh, unsure to me. The instability of, of, our, uh, of times and circumstances and events and experiences. But I know this. He is God. Ah, Lord God. And he begins with that sense. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. That simple statement. Everything that exists. Exists by you. And even you'll notice in there. Possibly in your translations. It says. Ah Lord God. And then God is in all caps. There are some times. When in your Bibles. The word Lord is in all caps. That's when it's the word Yahweh. Or Jehovah. Um, Lord would be in all caps. Here it's Adonai Jehovah. Or Adonai Yahweh. And so it's. Lord God. And that idea that what's called Yahweh or Jehovah, what the way that we pronounce it. See, Yahweh is a, a short way of saying what was pronounced Jehovah for fear of possibly saying the name of God and then being slain. Uh, that was called the Tetragrammaton because it's simply uh, uh, four letters but that, is, that was revealed when God spoke to Moses and Moses said, who, who, who shall I say sends me? It's in that context, say that I am sent you. 
the I am that I am. Basically, the, the whole sense is this. The, he is the self-existent and source of all that exists and rules it. Just in that simple statement, "Ah, Lord God, it carries all that. And at that point, you're almost like, that kind of covers everything. But then he's going to expand on that. You made everything in heaven and on earth by your outstretched arm. And verse 17 ends, it says this, nothing is too hard for you. Even, even as he says it, God himself is going to reiterate that very statement down in verse 27. What has God said? Behold, I am the Lord. That time Yahweh or Jehovah is Lord, all caps. And the God of all flesh is anything too hard for me or too difficult. And what's interesting is if I was to give a more literal rendering, the word here is not the word for difficult or hard. It's the word for wonderful. Is there anything too amazing, too wonderful, too great, too astounding, too remarkable for me? Which includes the difficult. But it's not just the difficult. Is there anything that's too wonderful for me? Your ability limit stops here. Your imagination stops here. God's power does not. It remains unbounded by anything but his perfect desires. Creator of all. Maker of all. Made the earth by his great power. You show verse 18, and, and all of this immensity, it says, you show steadfast love to thousands. This great maker of all is not simply uh, distant and apart from, uninvolved and unconcerned with, but he engages himself. He engages himself with specificity. He engages himself on a broad scale. He engages himself not only in, this is chesed, loving kindness, steadfast love. It, it's, it's, a, it's a term that's often used of his special covenant uh, relationship and loyalty to Israel. And then what does it also go on to say? And you repay the guilt of fathers to, uh, to their children after them. So here is God involved, showing mercy and kindness and helpfulness, showing judgment and punishment. Here is God, the maker of all things, the controller of all things, actively, personally, personally specifically involved in all that's unfolding. And then it continues. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The, the goal here, it, you, you, just, you just see that he's just trying to pile up all of the superlatives he can. What are, the, what are the biggest words and the biggest thoughts and the biggest concepts that I can say? Lord of hosts, heaven and earth, great and mighty, overall. And then it says great in counsel and mighty indeed. Now I want to just, the idea of great in counsel, understand this. It doesn't mean he gives great advice. That's what we might call one another. If another person is gives good counsel, we would say they give good advice. God's not someone who simply gives good advice. This carries a different idea. It's more the idea like you would see over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. God who works everything after the counsel of his will. This term counseled, uh, uh, translated counsel, often is this, plans and purpose. God is great in his plans and in his purpose. Great in the sense also that he brings them about. Because all his ways are perfect and just. And then it just continues to grow. Mighty indeed. He sees all. He knows all. His eyes are on the children of man. His judgments over all things. It goes on to speak of the historic displays of his judgments in the history of Egypt. And just continues to build the glories and wonders of God. So in this passage. We really have seen. 
four simple thoughts, and I want to draw your minds back to it. The first thing that we saw is the sure reality. It doesn't matter if God says what you don't like or you don't want. It's still true. Men will reject and rebel against the truth. Men will reject, revile, and wrong those who stand for and speak the truth. But it remains true. So may God grant that we remain true to his truth because it is a sure reality. Second thing that we saw is this, the sound response. It doesn't matter if it makes good sense to us or whether or not we like it. If God said it, do it because he's God. If God declared it, believe it. Because he alone reveals himself. We see that he has a superior reasoning because his way is just. He is exalted. He is always right. He never does wrong. He is the Lord. The Lord of hosts. And then we saw this amazing recounting of or remembering of the sovereign. Expanding on him with all kinds of words of praise that touch every existence of creation Every, every element of history that puts him transcendently above and beyond everything and puts him eminently in and working within all things. From the grand design to the smallest detail, God's plans, counsel, purposes are in play at all times. And so the simple thing for us is this, what? We listen to God and we receive his word as true, not to pass judgment on it, not to assess it, uh, assess it, but to accept it. And in accepting it, knowing that it's his word and that it's true, we learn to be glad and rejoice in it. Even when the experiences that we have may not be desirable we learn because of the surety of his word and the clarity of his will to rejoice not in how the world treats us and not maybe even in our present circumstances but in who he is in the unfolding of his will and the sure finality that he's all bringing it to we trust in his superior reasoning what a great god let's pray